Hey folks, Sam Jones here, and welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. In this episode, I sit down with actor, musician, writer, director, and poker player Don Cheadle. Don is hands down one of the most gifted actors working today. Look at just a fraction of his work, like Hotel Rwanda, Traffic, and House of Lies, and you realize how few artists can embody such a range of characters with such authenticity, and seemingly with such little effort. Don recently added some credits to his resume when he took on writing and directing Miles Ahead, the experimental film about jazz trumpeter Miles Davis, which you better not call a biopic. He also appears in almost every frame of Miles Ahead. At times, the experience left him curled up in a quivering ball, and at others, filled with the joy of seeing a vision come to life. It's a vision he knows will rub some people the wrong way, but as his friend Herbie Hancock told him, that's what makes art stick with you. One thing's certain, it's made a lot of people rethink what films about real-life characters can be. It's already made many in the industry realize that Don's creative talents go way beyond acting. Like many of our guests, Don planned to be an actor from a pretty young age. Unlike a lot of them, he did have a fallback plan, being a musician. Clearly, he's not risk-adverse. We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about an important career question he thinks every parent should be ready to ask their kids. And speaking of careers, Don has some straight talk for all you aspiring actors out there. Though he's been doing amazing work for the last three decades, I left our conversation feeling like his most impressive contributions are still ahead of him. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hey, Don. How you doing? Good, man. Thanks for coming and doing this. Let's start with a water break. Yeah, let's do that first. Get hydrated. I want to get the tears ready. Get, get them ready. <laughs> yeah, get your tear ducts all yeah, get lubricated. Yeah, tear ducts all lubed up. Um, so let's talk about your mother. No. Exactly. Boom. You know, we've, we've been in social circles before, but we haven't really ever sat down and had a long conversation. But I wanted to, as a way to end this conversation, relate um, a, a visual I have of you, which uh -huh. is we were at a wedding, and... Somehow you, uh, you sort of organized a poker game, like a serious poker game at the that, wedding. That sounds right. And I think my wife sat at the table for a while. I, I was like, yeah, I looked over, and you're at the table, and you're, you're shuffling cards like, like you're a dealer in Vegas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the perfect Miss, bridge Miss and the Spent fast. youth. And you're not even looking. You know? <laughs> and I watched from the doorway for a few minutes, and... And I go, God, that, that dude looks like a serious poker player. And then it also hit me. Like, I started thinking about some of the characters you've played. And I thought, I bet no one at the table ever knows what you're holding. Like, I, you just Man. seem to have this gravity that w seems like it would, for poker, it would work really well. Would that that were true. Uh, I'm in the rears. I'm in arrears. You're not in the I'm rears. In, I'm in. Uh, oh no, I'm in the rear. <laughs> I'm in arrears. Not that kind of show. Poker rank. Yeah, it's um no, it's. I, I should be better as much time as I've spent, and it depends. It's sort of like a you know, it depends on when when you ask that question. Sometimes I'm a very good poker player, and sometimes I'm a very bad poker player. What is the thing that makes a good poker player? If you take chance out of it, and you just look at. You know, if everyone is, if everyone is, no one's on a lucky streak or something, is it confidence? Is it? There's a lot of math involved. That's the biggest thing. The biggest thing is understanding how to deal with the odds, yeah. the hand strength, 
have a good memory about how this person has played and the psychology of not just what is he doing, but what does he think I'm doing? Right, right. What do I think he thinks I think? You know what I mean? It's like that, that kind of surveying the land is what makes really good poker players. And then just being anymore, these guys are just fearless. They're just, they're just aggre- super aggressive and are not afraid of, you know, betting five times into a pot. If they if they think they can bet a person off the hand, it doesn't matter what they have. So, have you been in that situation where you you have absolute shit in your yeah. hands and you'll just yeah, you have to do that. If you're not doing that, some at some points during the game, you're just waiting around for great cards, and those only come once every forty hands. So, if you're not doing that, you're not you're not really playing poker. Well, I would think that relates to an actor that comes in and commits to an audition, mm-hmm. commits to something, even if it's for that five minutes. Yep. And I would think there'd be some relationship there to how thick your armor is or how much you develop that confidence. I mean, is that something that you early on looked at? What does that look like to you when you're coming up? No, I think really that's something that I've just recently, I mean, within the last several years, come to terms with the... It's not fearless because I'm I'm still... There's still trepidation. I'm still anxious about it, but... Not, val- not, not giving that, that anxiousness or that fear or that trepidation enough strength and enough power that you won't do the thing anyway. Oh, you know right. what I mean? It's like it's, it's kind of what they're saying that bra- bravery is not the absence of fear, but it's the presence of fear, but doing it anyway. And that's kind of what I've learned. You know, like I said, it's very late in life for me to have learned that where I would see other people around me I'm like, how do you do that? It's like they're fearless. It's like, no, they just can deal with the consequence. They can just deal with what happens afterwards. And if you can deal with what af- happens afterwards and what you realize is mostly what it might be is embarrassment. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you can deal with being embarrassed or deal with like failing and uh, didn't do that right, then you can do many more things. But yeah. that's been something that was kind of late for me. I think that I was a late bloomer on that one. Were you in an environment where there was teasing or bullying or or were you was it a pretty safe place? I think I was really lucky that as far as acting goes that I got positive reactions very early. You know, it was something that at 10 years old when I was in Charlotte's Web as Templeton the Rat <laughs> on stage performing in the last number and people were clapping and stood up. I was like, "Oh shit." This is pretty cool. You know what I mean? So very early, I got this confidence that this was some place that I could try stuff and I could have fun and disappear in a character and all that stuff. Outside of that, you know, with, in my personal life, with, other, with friends and stuff, I mean, in my real life, I think I was much less of a, of a risk taker. Really? That's the place I would take the risk. Did you ever sort of test things you learned as an actor and see if they work in real life. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're always trying to like get over on stuff. And it was fun to to try to play characters in 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 the real world and see if you would get busted or not, you know. What's an example of that? I don't know. Uh, uh, just making up just making up a set of just telling a story, just making up a set of circumstances, you know, being in a conversation, meeting a stranger and just lying basically, <laughs> but just not lying just for the sake of some, you know, there's some goal at the end of it, like, if I lie, I can beat him out of this. But right. just trying to see if you could make them believe this history that you had fabricated as if you were in a scene. And my friends and I always also used to, like, 
we love to like fake fight. So we get into like fake fights outside of stuff and oh, grab ketchup and I'm gonna hit you and you spit the ketchup all over the window and do stupid, silly, you know, silly shit like that. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it, it was a, a great learning tool that, like I said, much later I realized that kind of confidence and that kind of willingness to just step out and, and, and maybe not, maybe fall flat on your face is something that you really need to incorporate in your life and in, in taking chances and, and, and putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. And that's where you start to learn and that's how you start to grow and that's how you start to, you know, expand your, your experience. Yeah. I don't know where I read, but I read some story about you at a very young age breaking down a script without knowing what you were doing. But it struck me when I read that that you, you might have known enough about what you wanted to do to take it seriously enough to develop. Like, did you develop a system pretty early on for this is how I do things? You know, or? I think it was that that was about actually the Templeton the Rat. That was actually oh, when what? I was in fifth grade doing Charlotte's Web. I remember that I took that script to a little cafe that we had, that was up the street from my house and and I was you know highlighting my lines but also trying to think about my motivation like why did he say that and why would he say that and what does a rat think in this situation and that I didn't know why I was doing that I don't know why I was thinking that I hadn't been taught formally anything about script analysis but I was really trying to get into the mindset of, of a rat and, you know, I wanted to read the book and make sure I understood what Templeton was and see the movie. It was all the, you know, I just wanted to do really well as Templeton. Where do you think that comes from? Like, were your parents analytical people that would, that, you, you think there was that example that that's how you tackle a project? I think the examples were being put in front of me by my, my dad's a psychologist and, you know, my mother was an educator and, and all of that, you know, sort of, as you talk about analytical way of thinking about things and examining motivations and why would you say a certain thing and what was going on in your head when this or that happened. I mean, people used to ask me all the time, did your dad psychoanalyze you all the time? I was like, right. I don't think so. But he's, I only have one dad, so I can't compare it to other dads. I don't know. But I know that we would talk a lot about things and, and we were always allowed to question. You know, it wasn't yeah. ever, you do what I say and that's it. It was, we were allowed to go, what, Why? You know, and we could have a talk about it. At the end of it, you were still doing what he said, but you could have a conversation. It wasn't just like, because I said so. And maybe there was something there that's about what's why. Maybe asking why was something that was just why a part of Templeton what I got to do. Why is so ornery? Yeah, why is he such a glut? Yeah. What is, he, what is the gluttony about? Where does that come from? Are all rats gluttons? Is that that's what it is? But that's exactly what you have to do. That's the work you have to do, right? Like, you have to know sort of a backstory or no. Because, I, I don't know, in having a lot of these conversations, one thing that struck me is that y you never want to know the future, but you want to right. know as much about your own past as you can. Yeah. Right? So that something can become instinctual. Well, yeah, you want to be, and it depends. It's like the theater's different, obviously, than if you're playing a character over and over and over and you get to sort of groove this this person that you're going to be for 6, 8, 12, 15 weeks, however yeah. long you're doing a play. There's a different kind of, an, a, a, of a malleable nature of that after a while. You know, you lock something in, then you let it go, then you find new ways to do it, and something else gets... You know, you get stuck in some place and there's an area where it's really free and then you're like, why can't I find that freedom here in this moment? There, And then that lock opens up and then ah. something else locks up. You know, it's this kind of living thing inside of the set, the set parameters of a play. 
TV is a little is different. It's faster. You know what I mean? You're the same character, but every week it's a different thing that you're dealing with. Um, and movies are a different thing entirely too. But I guess for all acting to be something that we believe, it has to look spontaneous. It has yeah. to seem as if you're like you're saying. I don't know what's happened. I don't know what's about to happen. I'm not end gaming this. I'm just in the moment, alive right here. And I guess that's the challenge that all actors have uh, to to try to be moment to moment. And I guess in life, that's when you're doing life the best too. Is when you're able to just kind of be in the moment. I totally agree. And I think that I think you can go through cycles because when you start getting some success, or at least for me, I start looking at what did I do to get that success. Yeah. But then you can become a slave to your process too, right? Yeah. You can you can say, oh, I have to do it this way, and if I don't, then I'm slacking off. I mean, have you gone through periods where you've had to actually examine the process and say, do I really need to do this? Or well, it's it's so funny because it reminds me of this. I, I'm gonna probably ruin it, but this vaudeville this old vaudeville story about this veteran actor, this vaudeville veteran actor and this young guy. And the veteran actor is the straight guy and the young guy is the, 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 the funny man. He's got the jokes in this one. And he's crushing and he keeps killing and keeps killing and there's some joke that they're doing and every time he says his punchline, the audience dies laughing. And it starts kind of not working and then it's not working and over and over it's not working. And in the thing, he's supposed to you know, ask for the coffee and when he asks for the coffee, everybody cracks up and it's not working anymore. And he says to the veteran one night, why isn't this working anymore? He goes, you're asking for the laugh. Ask for the coffee. Ah. You know, it's like you're locked into this result now. You know, you're trying to get the results. It's like just live in the moment. The joke works. Right. You got to do what the joke needs. You got to not ask for people to laugh at you. You got to ask for the coffee. And that's what you have to re- you have to remind yourself of all the time is not to end game it and to go, I just have to be in this scene and be in this moment and the result will take care of itself. So I guess if you're going to draw an analogy to your career or, or how you approach your work, I think people can smell when you're making cynical decisions or when you're making craven decisions or when you're trying to uh, sort of outthink and be strategic. It's like, I think that gives off a, I think that gives off, uh, it's off-putting as opposed to authentically going, oh, I want to do this because I like this and I'm interested in this and I want to dig into this and get into it. People don't want to feel like you're watching them watch you. It brings up a question about audience. Like, you know, if, if you, does your audience see you like you see yourself? Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think, are they seeing something completely different than what you're putting out? Absolutely. And there's, and, and there's countless times that I've been in a movie and I've been in a screening and they'll react differently to something that you intended or they'll won't react to something. You're like, they didn't, you didn't get that that was, or they laugh and you're like, I wasn't trying to be funny there. Or they take something serious and you're like, I was trying to be, you know, it's just, it's its own thing. Yeah. And uh, it's as much about how, what the audience comes in with as it is about what you're, you know, putting into that. And so to try and kind of figure all of that stuff out, I think is really not your job. And you can't really do it anyway. People and, and decide what it is. You don't get that. You don't get the right to do that after right. that. Right. All I can do is take care of my own work and what I'm trying to achieve in this moment, in this thing. Does it take getting work to develop as an actor? Well, I think a lot of times people think that 
that you have to have a job to work on acting, which you don't. You know what I mean? I, you can, I, I've read a lot of plays, and you can obviously work on monologues. You can, you can always work on script analysis. You can always, you know, uh, you can very often read scenes with people that you don't have to be performing for people. That's, that's all a part of the work to me. You're, you're still working on your instrument, and you're still keeping your, your chops up when you're doing that stuff. Whether or not you're performing for people, or there's an audience doesn't mean that you can't work, you know. So, uh, yes, in application, it often takes someone else, a partner, to be able to actually do the thing that you're doing. But I think a lot of people, I know people come up to me and say, you know, hey, man, I want to I do what you, I want to be an actor. And I want, how can I be an actor? And I go, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be a star or a celebrity or like, well, I want to be on, I want to, I'm like, are you acting right now? Are you in anything? Are you in plays? Are you auditioning for plays? Do you read plays? Are you yeah. reading scripts? Are, do you go to Sam French and grab stuff and see what you can work on? I'm like, that's all working. That's all doing acting work. Now, you know, yes, maybe you're not on a TV show or somebody hasn't put you in a film, but if you think that's the only way acting happens, it's probably going to be one or two things are going to happen you're never going to get that shot or you're going to get that shot and you're not going to be ready or you're going to get that shot and you're going to get that shot and then very quickly they're going to see that you're this deep and you have nothing to, to bring to the game. When you were coming up, did you do all those things? Did you, like, how did oh, you yeah. fill your time when you weren't working? I was very fortunate because I had good teachers. You know what I mean? I had good examples very early. And even my, my you know, Barbara Althaus in, in home elementary school that, you know, directed... The uh, Charlotte's Web production that I was in was, you know, would talk about work, not in that, you know, we were 10 and 11 years old, so it wasn't about go read Uta Hagen and you should study Stanislavski, but it was... Write me 20 pages on the seagull by (laughs) tomorrow. Why did Chekhov reduce that one line to... No, it wasn't like that, but... She was talking about the way you think about your character, and well, why would Templeton do that here? What do you think Wilbur would say that, you know, and made you it turned on that part of your brain that wasn't just like go stand there make sure that you turn out when you sing that song because the audience needs to see your face there was that too because we were 10 but she would ask the other questions about well what's going on why are they having that conversation what are they thinking about which is just a simple question but it's kind of the same question that you would ask at this level for any actor in any scene you would go what's going on here what's the text what's the subtext all of those things for me started really early and then I got to, uh, to high school, and my high school teacher was a very, you know, well-trained theater uh, teacher and introduced us to Uta Hagen and Stanislavski and, and the ways to, to... In high school, that's in amazing. In high school. And then when I graduated from high school, I went to CalArts. So there was, for me, a continuum that started very early uh, about acting, and it wasn't... Any of it wasn't. I mean, in the back of my head, of course, you're watching TV and you're watching movies and go, oh, maybe I can do that there at some point. Yeah. But it wasn't about, that's what you're trying to do. It wasn't about, make sure you get on TV. It was about, make sure you know what you're doing. What's, what's this about? What's acting about? And yeah. then apply it wherever you can apply it. But you got to know what this is first. Did you love the work as I much did. as the... You did. I did. I still do. I mean, I still... I still read monologues and, and, and read scenes with my kids sometimes for fun and 
I mean, my wife and I will read scenes together, and we're always read, she's always reading my work with me, and I write stuff, and we read it together. And but yeah, I, I still get excited, and 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 I still yeah, I still get excited about getting a good script, and closing everything off, and closing everybody out, and just going through it and reading it. Hey folks, let's take a break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Native. Now, if you've listened to me on this show for a while, you know that Native is my favorite deodorant. And it's a deodorant that I discovered while working on this show. One of the perks of doing this show is that advertisers come along and they say, try our stuff. And when Native sent a box of deodorant over, I gave it a sniff and then I put it on and I was hooked from the start. Now, if you're like me, you grew up and at some point you realize you need a deodorant and your dad gave you some deodorant. So since those early days, I have been using my dad's deodorant and that's been fine. But what I didn't know is that most deodorants contain aluminum, which forms a plug in your sweat glands and those plugs keep you from sweating. But that's not good. No one wants aluminum plugging up their body. But Native's deodorant is made without aluminum so you can feel better about what you're putting on your body. But for me, the main draw to Native is the smell. I am somebody who doesn't like the smells of perfumes or aftershaves or anything like that. I like a clean, fresh smell. If you remember the old Seinfeld episode where Kramer created a cologne that smelled like the beach, I thought that was actually a great idea because I like smelling like natural things and I like smelling natural things. So I tried Native deodorant and the one I love is cucumber and mint. And since then, I've tried coconut and vanilla, which is great because it makes you feel like you're on a tropical island. And there's eucalyptus and mint and lavender and rose. But once trying Native, it was just a different feeling. It goes on drier, it doesn't feel chemically, and I just like the natural smell. So there you go. I have a new favorite deodorant, and I wouldn't have discovered it if I wasn't doing this show. So I have you, the off-camera listeners, to thank for that little experience. And because of that, at the end of this sponsorship read, I'm going to give back by telling you a code so you can try Native deodorant and you can get some money off while doing it. But before I tell you about that, here's something I bet you didn't know that I didn't know. That Native also makes toothpastes. And Native's toothpaste uses a special blend of naturally derived cleansers, flavors, and whiteners to deliver a great brushing experience without the trade-offs of other natural toothpastes. Mainly that gritty, odd-tasting thing that doesn't taste like toothpaste at all. Native has two minty flavors with the option of fluoride or fluoride-free that will help keep your mouth squeaky clean They have whitening wild mint and peppermint oil and detoxifying charcoal with mint. So there you go. Not only can you put Native under your arms, you can put it in your mouth. And it's the total care package from a very great company. Native's natural toothpaste can do it all. It whitens teeth, freshens breath, is enamel safe, and prevents cavities. And it's made without triclosan, sulfates, artificial preservatives, or parabens. Basically all the not good stuff. So you got to try Native. Start with their deodorant, try their toothpaste, and here's the offer. For off-camera listeners, you can get 20% off your first purchase just by visiting nativedeodorant.com and using the promo code OFFCAMERA during checkout. That's nativedeodorant.com and use the promo code OFFCAMERA. So try Native, send me an email, tell me what you think, and thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Did it dawn on you at one point that... You just knew this is what you wanted to do. I mean, was it? Were you young, and and did you have another plan? Like, well, if this doesn't work out, yeah, I'll be a musician. 
That was my, that was the fallback. So, did you? Was there a point where you were conflicted? Because I think when people are talented in in multiple areas of the arts, it can be harder because you get so much joy out of different places, right? I'm sure you got a huge amount of joy out of music. More than acting, ever. More than acting. Yeah. So, how do you make that decision, and how do you how do you stick with it when times get hard? I don't remember making any sort of declaration, and I know that it that music. And, and, and theater, I was doing both, you know, and, and playing jazz bands and playing in bands that were, you know, uh, citywide bands made up of people around the city and then our own bands and we would go and perform at parties and stuff and make money on the side. And I was doing that at the same time. I was in all the school plays and doing theater and doing citywide theater, that, you know, kind of on two tracks. Right. Um, Which you could be as a kid. You don't absolutely. have to make a decision. Yeah, I didn't. And it was all good in high school. And when I graduated from high school, I uh, had a couple of small scholarships to pursue acting, and I had a couple of small scholarships to pursue vocal jazz and music. So that, at and, that point, you sort of have to make a decision because yeah. you're choosing which school is going to be better. Yeah, where am I tracking now? For real. Right. But I also had come up with some pretty like, serious musicians. Um, Ron Miles, Javon Jackson, Brad Laley, these guys who are like professionals now and doing it now and recording artists now. And I, and I saw the amount of work that was necessary to get there. And I also had a good enough ear and understanding of the music to know what I wanted for myself if I was going to do it. Because I was listening to Cannonball Adderley and, and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and Coltrane. I mean, that was like... That's the trajectory. I want to try, who doesn't? But I was like, that's kind of where I want to be headed. Yeah. And I know the amount of theory I'm going to have to learn and the amount of, of practice I'm going to put, have to put in and the kind of time that that would require. And I still might not get there. And I just went, I don't think that's a mountain that I can climb right now. now did you have the same side about acting? Like, if, if I'm going to do this, I want to be on that level of the greats? Like, you just mentioned the greatest jazz <laughs> people of lived. all. Right. Yeah. Are, you know, are you looking at... Brando people, yeah, and, yeah, and, saying, and Morgan Freeman and Denzel. Is yeah. who I want to be? I, th I thought that, that that was somewhat more within my grasp than the other, than, than ever being able to play like Coltrane. Did you talk to your parents? Did you sit down with your dad and say... Uh, you know, when you had sort of the scholarship offers. And yeah. You did. Yeah, to both of them. You remember their advice? What do you want to do? They kept it really simple. Yeah, what do you, where, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? This is ultimately going to be what you want to do. And I think they were loath to be parents who were like, no, you need to do this, and then have me have a miserable time doing that. Um, and they may have had conversations in the bedroom that, you know, they're like, holy shit. <laughs> Actor or musician. Actor or musician. <laughs> you know, he's not going to get a, neither of those are going to work out. Well, that's got to be the thought of any parent, no matter how good your kid may be or his teachers are saying he is. You know, that's a small sample size. Yeah, you, that's a small target to hit. But it also brings up, you know, when you're a kid... Things look so hard and so big. And so, you know, I think of you saying, I didn't think I could be good enough to right. be a musician. But now... Now I know it. Now you know it. <laughs> so, there, so there's never now a I know thought I could of, never like, be I, I could have done this. I, maybe I shortchanged myself at that time. There are times when I'm playing 
trumpet, bass, piano, whatever, that I go, wow, if I had been, now I would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, but there's also an understanding, and I can't tell myself the story anymore. I'm 52 years, 51 years old. I know that we'll do it now. I know that there's no impediment to me right. doing it. Right. So there's, I don't have that. I don't have that thing riding on my shoulder anymore. It's like that, that doesn't that doesn't hold water. If you want that, you do it now, and you get as good as you get. You know, not everybody wants to play like Keith Jarrett, so you you probably won't be able to, or maybe you will. Who knows? But I know that you won't by sitting here going, "Man, I wish I could." We'll start playing. Then you might get there. You know. So that's that's what's sort of liberating for me now is I don't have that. I don't have that same that same knot in my stomach about it or that same sort of trepidation about, God, but if I can't get there, I can't. It's like, yeah, that's a reality. You, you, you probably can't get there. You know, John Coltrane started playing when he was 10 or 11 years old. You yeah. may not get there. Well, you picked a, also a, a, a genre of music that it would be like trying to be first chair in the New York Philharmonic or something. Yeah, of, good luck. Violin. That's not the, what the music... At 17, what that meant to me is not the same thing it means to me at 51 years old. You know, I enjoy it and I get off on the the ability to communicate with a bunch of other people in a nonverbal way. That is just there's some, unless you do it, unless you play it, it's very hard to explain. If you play music, you know that's right. That that turns on something else in your head that nothing else turns on. It speaks to some part of you that nothing else that I've done anyway even comes close to, to touching. You go in a room with and, and everybody, you don't know anybody's backstory, you don't know anything about anybody else. If you do that, you know, and then you all can come together and talk about something like you all learned a language that no one taught you guys all collectively, but you're all collectively talking on the same level and changing the conversation as you're going. And it's just, a, it's, just it's own thing. It is. You know, I'm curious about having you having to go deep into playing the trumpet for this film, Miles Ahead, that I want to get to and talk about. If having a goal in your practicing, rather than just mm -hmm. playing music, but mm -hmm. a, a certain goal and a deadline, mm -hmm. if that changed your relationship to music? It allowed me to sort of revisit some muscles that I hadn't, you know, flexed or used in a while. Um, trumpet, there's just a physical just the, the actual physical nature of having to get your embouchure together and play a horn and the breath and the musculature and all of that stuff was, was new stuff. I was that kid that would come home and put on uh, an LP of Cannibal Adderley, let's say, and that's when there was an LP and there were 33 and 78. Sure. So you could play the 33 at 78 and it was almost an octave lower. Uh -huh. Not exactly, but almost. So I could hear it because it was slower. I could hear it. But so it would be so I could actually stop it, put the needle back, stop, put the needle back, put the needle back. And I would do that through the whole solo until I could trans, you know, transcribe the whole solo. Wow. And figure out, like, oh, that's what he was playing. Oh, that. And I was doing that with the Miles stuff. On this movie, I would, you know, listen to a solo on Miles Ahead and, and not just go get the sheet music, but I'd sit in my room and... Gosh, I'm interested in what happens when you do that work, how it unconsciously informs your acting and getting into that character, too. 
Was there ever a moment uh, on this film where you you were able to just sort of relax into the confidence of knowing that you'd gone deep enough into the man's music to actually understand more about him? No. 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 That I never. That are the relaxed. I never. That never. Well, let's back up a little bit because <laughs> Miles Ahead is this film that. Tell me briefly, just just so people catch up, how long you've been involved yeah. in this project and, and how how long it took to get to this place where it's about, you know, it's here. Well, I would say as early as 2004, 2000, I don't know exactly when it started, kind of the whisperings of... Like 12 years of... Of from people say, from people that had played with Miles that I would bump into curse somewhere in some situation in Tume going hey you you'd be a good Miles you should you should think about that or Quincy Troop somewhere that I'd see him in some place and he'd go you know I wrote this autobiography and I'm doing this thing I'd be like oh that you know they would just the the rum the rumblings of it were coming around coming around as always I would go well okay well if there's anything that comes together. <laughs> Let me know. Yeah, I, I wasn't really that interested in doing another biopic at that point. You know, I had right. done the Sammy Davis thing. I'd done Goat, HBO. I'd done, you know, Hotel Rwanda was right at the, sure. around that time. Yeah, and I, I was kind of for whatever reason good with playing historical characters. I was like, I'd like to just, you know, play someone closer to me, maybe, and do something. Yeah, that, you know, be a modern. Person, not have to set myself back forty years to get a good story. Are there any modern stories about <laughs> black people that live today that might actually be good to do? I, I want to do one of those, you know. So, Miles was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in two thousand six, and they were interviewing his nephew Vince Wilburn, who played with them. And they asked Vince if there was ever going to be a movie about his life, and he said, "Yeah, Don Cheadle's going to going to play him." So, on TV. Yeah, so it had been announced <laughs> at that point. You get a call from your agent, why haven't I heard about that? Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> it's a fascinating strategy, though, for how to get a project going. Just, but, but that's just how say it, it's happening. It's right. kind, you just have to kind of make these, push these things into, force them into existence. Yeah. You know, it's not like by polite, you know, and permission. You have to just go, this is happening. So Vince went, this is happening, he's playing him. So then people started calling. And I met with the family, and uh, they pitched me some of the ideas, which all... For their biopic-esque? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I kind of am not into that, especially with this guy. I mean, this dude is the most creative, one of the most creative artists of all time. Across any genre. Across any genre. And changed music four times and touched everything and lived a wild life. You know, I'm like, I... Unless the thing is, I, I want to make a movie that I think Miles Davis would want to be the star of. I don't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I want to be like, I kept saying, I want to do Don Cheadle, is Miles Davis, as Miles Davis in. <laughs> Whatever. Well, and the film has that quality to it. What struck me so much about seeing the film is how much his particular life philosophy towards music influenced the script and the film, yeah. and it couldn't be further from a biopic. It yeah. could, I mean, it's a new form of film in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I was blown away when I saw the film oh, by you. its relationship to some of the most, you know, 
creative jazz minds that have ever lived. Like, I think the relationships to this film are not other directors and other films. They're records. And, they're, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and there's psychology in there, I feel like, the way we have memories and how our memories mm -hmm. are influenced by emotion, how time stretches, mm -hmm. and, and maybe a heavier emotional memory will get put into another place right. because it makes more sense in our brain next to the resolution of that thing, even if the resolution was three years later or five years later. And Could you just tour around me and, no, and have I, this conversation <laughs> every time? But I mean, but you were, you, were, you were touching on all of the stuff that my, when we finally got into this iteration of the film with the, fi with the you know, irrational financier who finally said, all right, I'll, I'll pay for it, and we tried to cobble this whole thing together, Stephen Bagelman, who co-wrote the script with me, these are the conversations that we would have all the time. And pull back and go, is that too esoteric? Is this too heady? Well, Are we trying to do something that's that. not... Well, we always talked ourselves down off of that ledge and went, right. no, it isn't. Yeah. No, it isn't. Is this too arch? It's like, no, it isn't. Do we have to talk about when he met Dizzy and Coltrane and, 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 and Cannibal and when he left Juilliard and went to the street and then he left that and then he went and started working with Gill and do we have to talk about modality versus bebop and then bebop? It's like... No, but we had to keep asking God. that question because yeah. that's, what, that's the weight of the gravitational pull of biopics and the gravitational pull of how you are supposed to deal with an historical figure and what you need to do is so strong that you're kind of looking at each other going, I know we say we want to violate this and that was our interest in this from the beginning and that's what made us the most excited about this. But are we really going to do that? Yeah. And by the way, stuff that Stephen and I love too. Yeah. It wasn't course. stuff that we were like, eh, it doesn't, it's like, I love that story. I would love to figure out, but we would always say, but does it track? Does it track with the story that we're trying to tell about somebody who basically has writer's block? You know what I mean? A, well, a, yeah. So talk about the moment when it struck you that the architecture of this film should be built around this period where he not only didn't put any records out, but he stopped playing altogether. You know, there's a passing line in the beginning of the film. Uh, oh, he really is the Howard Hughes of jazz. And he, <laughs> right, yeah. he, he disappeared yeah. off the map. Right. And I wonder if you could sort of talk me through the feeling when you settled on that, like when an artist gets, you know gets the key that unlocks the entire thing. It, it, and it was. And even you just saying it again, to me, when I hear it, sounds like, some, again, it's like this prolific, the, the most, one of the most prolific artists who went from bebop and left the comfort of that, left the, 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 the hug of... Charlie Parker and Dizzy and all the fame that you could want playing with the, the greatest guys who'd ever done it. Just, I'm done with that. Now I'm going to do this. And getting complete success in that milieu and doing something, oh, the birth of the cool, what's all that? And the new, and, and now I'm going to do this. It's like, and when you hear his solos, you hear him play some of the most beautiful ballads and the last note will ring out and he's like, I play that back, oh, I hear that back. There's no reverie, there's no... He doesn't sit in it, you know, he doesn't luxuriate in the feeling that he just created for everybody. He's like, okay, I played that. What's the next thing? How does somebody who's like that stop? What happens when that just stops? And how does it stop? And why does it stop? And how does it get going again once it stops? All of those questions to me were 
more interesting and exciting than how when he met John Coltrane and they had a fight backstage because John was on the nod and he's like, don't fucking do that to the music and they got in a fist fight. That's a cool scene and that's an interesting moment and it does speak to Miles' dedication to the music. But I understand that better just kind of at first blush than I do this other part. So that to me says that's something, there's more there. It's interesting that you chose that because I think that I think every artist that does something into the crossover commercial world, Miles sold mm-hmm. records, you make films, there's, there's an economic expectation to it all. Whenever you have that, I think there's also a tendency to try to stick people in their lane. And I'm sure Absolutely. you've had this as an actor. Yeah. Right? I mean, even from the stray biopic, Don's going to play That's him. That's what I'm saying. That's why I was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. And here you have this artist that every single time someone stuck him in a lane, he would go, I- I'm, I'm going over here. Yeah. So to me, just that idea that you chose to do that, it says a lot about you. Absolutely. And there was a lot of points of connectivity that I felt with Miles. Hey folks, time for a break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Today Ticks. Now, if you're like me, as much as you like social events and hanging out with your family and doing things, there's nothing that beats an afternoon spent solo wandering around the city. Maybe you take yourself to a movie, maybe you bring a good book into a restaurant, or maybe you just stroll through the park. And I'll tell you what is great, it's solo theater going. You can really focus on the show, you can see whatever show you want, You can get dressed up and pretend you're some sort of spy. (laughs) Uh, But I like going places on my own sometimes and having an immersive experience that I can just soak in without even having to talk about it. So my suggestion for you today is to take yourself out to the theater using Today Ticks. Today Ticks is the place to get the best prices on theater tickets in one place. Just download the app or visit todayticks.com to find a show you want to see. Whether you're looking for musicals, plays, comedy, dance, or anything else, you can always find the show you want to see. With Today Ticks, getting tickets is easier than ever. You can book them in just a few clicks and be ready to go in 30 seconds or less. I'm a pretty spontaneous person, and sometimes I'll just find myself with a couple of free hours that I didn't know I had. And I love finding things that I can do spontaneously, but with Today Ticks, you can do that or you can book months in advance. That's a game changer for me because I never quite know my schedule and I can always check Today Ticks and find out what's out there. No matter where you live, you can catch a great show. Today Ticks has tickets to Broadway and London's West End, but also across the country and around the world in cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, DC, San Francisco, Sydney, and more. And if you do end up going to see something by yourself, make sure to share with the hashtag MySoloShow. So with Today Ticks, you can finally see that show you've been waiting to see forever, or you can discover something new that you'll love just as much. Go to todayticks.com slash off-camera and use the promo code off-camera to get $10 off your first Today Ticks purchase. That's promo code off-camera at todayticks. That's T-I-X dot com slash off-camera for $10 off your first ticket purchase. Todayticks.com slash off-camera. Now back to the show. Well, two things strike me about Miles that I want to throw out. Uh, number one is the oft-told story about him, that the idea that if, you, if he heard you in your hotel room practicing and you played that same solo that night on stage, Done. he wanted you to discover something. And he That's wanted right. the audience to be part of that discovery. And the other thing, 
people always describe his sound and his and his decisions in his compositions as leaving room for the listener to finish the solo. Right. And I couldn't help but think, how do you apply those two constructs to a film when a film has to have so much that's our, that's preparation set. and organization yeah, and set? Yeah. But how do you leave room? You're right. A film, the, a production has to be highly organized and, and as, as to, the, to the degree that you can, every potential trap down the road avoided, figured out yeah. how you can manage this army as you're trying to get through this process. But within Can't that... Can't tell the DP, like, well, yeah, I might be over there and I might be over there. <laughs> exactly. See, just kind of light, General Elf. <laughs> we'll figure it out. But you try to ask how much, where is the freedom within this framework? Yeah. Where is the freedom within this shot? And, and not just from the DP, but from your sound guy, from the designer, from your set decorator, to, to everybody. I, I brought them in early and said, I've, I'm, I want to cast you. I want to hire you in the same way that Miles would pick a musician. He didn't tell John Coltrane what to play. He said, you can play, so play. The best directors I've worked with have that. One of my favorite stories is being on the set of, of Traffic and um, Steven Soderbergh and his first AD, who he's worked with forever, um, Greg, were talking about a scene that they had to do. And Steven was saying, okay, on this scene, I was in another scene with another actor. His name is Kiki. He said, I want Don and Kiki to walk by having this conversation. And I want you to have, you know, uh, extras passing back and forth in the, in the foreground. And Greg said, you want Don and Kiki in the foreground. And you want the extras passing by in the background. And he said, no, I want Don and Kiki in the background. And I want the extras passing in front of them in the foreground. And Greg said, you want Don and Kiki in the foreground. And you want the extras in the background. And Stephen looked at him like, are you... And then he kind of looked off and he went, yeah, I want Don and Kiki in the foreground. I want the extras working in the background. He said, okay. And he walked up to make it happen. And there was no, you know what I mean? It was like, because at the end of the day, he wants the best film. And if you keep that in front of you, then you're going to do things like that yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I, why cast, a, why put somebody in that job and then try to micromanage them? It's, you, you do have to be the final say, and you're the final arbiter of what this is, this whole thing is that you want it to be. But within that, I, for me, I, it was necessary for me to do it in the seat I was in, in all the seats I was in. Because you were I, in every frame of the film. Yeah, I had to offload that stuff to people, and I wanted to, and I wanted them to feel ownership about the project because we were all playing this together. We were all in the band, you know. That brings up a great topic about first time directing because this film not only had been on your radar and and you're like Sisyphus pushing this rock mm -hmm. up the hill for a decade but it was also the closest thing in your, to your heart musically and everything like when you talk about the film in a director's career where it's like that's the one that's me you know mm -hmm. having that as your first one like it would be nice to I don't know, be able to have practice on, a, on a, like a low-budget slasher film. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, where you, yeah. you can just learn your craft and you don't really care about the subject matter so much or, right. or having to be so true to, to somebody that's so up here as an artist. Yeah. I just wonder on that first day if somehow I could get in your shoes and understand oh, how much you thought you'd prepared and then you got there and saw how much you weren't prepared. How was that? It was terror. Terror. Terror from day one. I mean, before day one. 
actually before day one, I could tell myself that, you know, hey, but a meteor might hit and we might all die and I may never have to do this and it won't be my fault. I can just go, oh. And you're yeah. hoping for that. Yeah, maybe. Point. Yeah. If the, yeah, maybe the apocalypse happens and I don't have to do this. I mean, did you sort of in your head map out, like, did you, did you look at a room and say, okay, so I'm, I'm in costume, I'm Miles, I'm doing this thing and then I'm going to have to go walk over and talk to the, like, did you, did yes. you, were you able to simulate how that experience no. was going to be? In my head, yeah. I had all these ideas about what it would be like and how I would have to be able to do it. And of course, all that shit goes out the window the first moment you're on the set. So what were you and like the real world trying comes to figure in. that out? Well, you know, the first day on set was the day that we are driving to Columbia. Oh, yeah. Okay. So. Process trailer and the. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no. No, no process trailer. <laughs> Didn't quite have that kind of a budget. Uh, it was, you know, ND cars, you know, period cars, which I think we had nine of or okay. something like that. Total. A bu- yeah, total. Uh, they ND kept driving bus. around. Yeah, absolutely. Pass. All of that. <laughs> Can they drive this way really close to the camera one time so they're out of focus and then in focus that you know, one way we only have one way we can control, right. only control the street this way? Can we can paint we, half we, the car Do we have control color? of the street? We don't, we, don't, we don't control the street this way? We don't control the street? Okay. Um, what do, that's what it was every day. Do we have the, oh, we don't have that? Oh, do we have, oh, we don't have that? And in, I think in a good way, the pressure and the, and the having to make, you know, decisions that were, that were, had huge implications. Like that. Yeah. Something about that pressure, although it wasn't good for my health. And I lost weight and almost had a breakdown. It was terrifying and all of that stuff. Well, that, that bad. I, it, it, was, it was really, um, really, really, really hard. Like Bridget, who, you know, came back the, after, after I came back. My wife, she was like, I don't think you can, uh, you're, you, you can't do that anymore. I was like, well, I don't know. She's like, no, you cannot do another movie like that. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. You were not healthy. <laughs> you didn't look good. It was not good for you. You, you. Gave all for for that. Yeah, there was no there was no other way to do it. I mean, I tried to give this movie away. I didn't want to. If it had all gone away several years ago, I would have been relieved. I would have been. I would have felt like, well, good. I, it's how it is when you love something so much. Almost, you don't want to. You don't want to be res- the guy who yeah it up. who messes it up. You know, I didn't. And I and I really thought that it would it and and I would kind of say still today at the end of it. I don't know that it's the smartest thing to do to do all of those things. I don't think you necessarily have, you definitely don't have the ability to be as granular as you need to be as an actor for your particular performance and the role that you're doing, just you, and also have the 10,000 foot perspective that you have to have as a director to manage the entire thing. You're porpoising the whole time. I was the whole time. It's funny you say that because watching the film, if you didn't know that you directed it, I would assume, oh my God, that might have been a tough set because I bet he never came out of character and I bet there was so much energy needed for the actor that, you know, the whole crew had to make allowances for that thing. But to but that's that's the performance came off like that. I mean, you I think you are in every frame of the film. But to me, I felt like 
you disappeared inside Miles Davis completely. I, I don't know how you direct and do that. I couldn't do it all the time, but as much as I could do it, I would do it. And some days I'd show up on set and I would just tell my producer, like, you're fucking with Miles today. Like, today, don't even talk to Don. Don't even say Don. Really? You know, and because it would be certain scenes, I would, I felt that focus, I need, it would be too hard to come in and out and in and out and in and out. Would you have to make a judgment on each scene? I've got to, I've got to give the acting the priority here. I've got to give the directing the priority here. Would you, or, or did you just sort of play it as it? I maybe thought, I maybe was, str- tried to be strategic on certain days about that. Like thinking, oh, this is going to be a heavier acting scene than this day. So I have to do this or that. But like I said, I, once I would show up on the set, that would, the plan would go out the window. You know, when, when man, you want to make God laugh, make plans, you know, and it right. was like that every day. So I would have plans about how the day would go, but invariably I'd show up and something would, you know, there's a, the scene where I'm kind of playing for Francis and playing blue and green when she comes into the club. That's right. And we're playing to playback. And, uh, because they used a lot of atmosphere and smoked up the room that day, the fire alarm is going off in that scene, the smoke alarm is going off in that scene, and the fire department sirens you can hear in the distance coming because they're driving to the set to put out the fire that's not there that my sound, my special effects guy created with the smoke. And through that, I'm playing this ballad to her. Oh so there were things like that. It's funny looking back on it, but there are things like that that obviously I was pulling my hair out on the day that but would cause God me to lose weight. that you're the director at that point because if you're just the actor, you're like, this, this guy's got to get his act together. Right. Right. This director what has got to. What is going on, man? Shut I'll be in my down. trailer that I don't have because we can't afford trailers, but yeah. I'm going to be in that corner pouting. You know, so, yeah, no, that, those, uh, things like that happened a lot. But then a happy accident would happen in the same way that we always have happen on film. Something amazing would happen. A, a performer would come in and play, and you'd be like, oh, my God. I got the sense from the film that Miles saw his life in a completely different fashion than anyone else saw his life. Like, looking at it from, and, and using the methods you did of time-stretching and the way, the way scenes would layer over each other mm-hmm. and... And sometimes they would be flashbacks, but otherwise, but other times the flashbacks would meld with the yeah. present. It's a visceral experience of a film, and that's the hope. That's 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 the challenge, and that's the hope is that you don't come in, and you're not trucking in all of your. Well, this is now. I know what this is. This is Ray, or this is Walk the Line, or this right. is any of those that. And not to disparage those, but to say. If you come in with feeling like that, it can feel like there's a bait and switch, I think. And that was a lot of the stuff that we were concerned about early is that, you know, and I do an interview and somebody go biopic and I go, well, it's not a biopic. And we'd, I get to the end of it and at the end they go, so in this biopic, and I go, it, it doesn't <laughs> You know, you're, you're fighting uphill against yeah. the, the preponderance of evidence that says if it's an historical figure in this sort of a thing and it's a period that that's what you're, that's why you're doing this. Right. This is about, that's the only, why else would you do it? Right. That's what the conventional wisdom is. I'm kind of amazed that you know, with the family and with the financing and everything, that that you're allowed to make something. That, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your vision completely. Right. Like, I could never say to anyone that, well, this isn't actually what I intend. It's like, no, it's 
to to the degrees that I was able to accomplish to the at the level that I wanted to, you know, like yeah, we were in low budget hell. There were things that I was like, man, I would love to have another another bite at that apple. But I can't say that wasn't the apple that I was trying to bite. It was like right. that's the apple I was trying to bite. Do you remember your lowest point on the set? Was there a moment? Oh yeah. <laughs> I I remember looking at uh in an assembly that not the whole movie either because we we're still shooting, but I'd say four weeks in, we shot six weeks. Four weeks in, John sent me uh, just a rough assembly that he'd done with everything up to that point. And I, it, it was debilitating. I, I, I literally crawled into the bed and went, well, that's, how do I kill this? How can I, how can I... I don't think they'll let me just bury it. Maybe I'll just buy it. Maybe I'll just spend everything I have and I'll just buy the movie and, and just bury it. Put it in your backyard. Yeah, and just be like, oh, that was my student film and nobody ever saw it and it, I just bury it. What is it about that first cut that's so... I mean, because that's, that's not an uncommon story. Right. That's, that, you're right. And that's what I was told. Like, Did you just see all the say flaws that, like, and all the faults? That's and... all I could ever see. And to this day, I don't watch the movie when we go to screenings and, and, and you know, festivals and premieres and stuff like that. Because it's still very hard for me to see past the things that I see that way. It brings up a conversation the about getting that close to your art and that close to something that you care about that much. And, and yeah, can you ever see it? removed from your expectations. I don't I don't think so. I mean there's a there's a story that I think Jerry Lewis tells about he and Billy Wilder were friends. And late, late in Billy Wilder's life he, you know, called Jerry Lewis over to the house and Jerry Lewis says he comes to the front door and Billy Wilder's like, yeah, come here, come here, come here. And he's like walking through his house and he's like, come, come, come. He's like, he's got a big house, we're walking all through his house and he goes and walks down the basement. He's like, come on, come on, come on. He's like what are, we, what are we doing? But he goes down the basement and turns on the light and he's got this old editing equipment, old reel-to-reel, and he turns on the projector and they start watching and he's like, what do you, what's going on? And he goes, I, I think I figured it out. I think I finally got it. And it's, you know, Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. And, and he recut it. You're kidding me. <laughs> he's like, no, watch this scene. I think, I think I got it. I think I figured it out. It's like, they won four Oscars. What are you talking about? Is it impossible to not have an expectation or... Do you think do you think about that or are you able to let it go and I'll tell myself not to read stuff and then I'll read stuff. I don't want to know what people think but then I want to know. I'm like I don't want to know what the Twitter world says about it and I'll read all the tweets. You know, it's like I hope I have more discipline than to put myself down that rabbit hole of my emotions banding about from every time somebody likes it or hates it. You know what I mean? I think that I've made something that could potentially be polarizing. And I think that if people are not able to let go of their expectation, they're going to feel disappointed. I think people who are willing to go along with the ride might feel like it's just, boom, I love this, this is great. And everything in between that. So, and I think they're all right, by the way. You know, it's like I wanted to do a poster. I was saying, you know, the, the poster should come out. You know, A.O. Scott, mesmerizing, early Oscar contention. Boston Globe, what the fuck is this? You know, <laughs> Detroit Press, this is a piece of shit. LA Times, amazing. You know, I think, I think that every quote should be on the poster. I've never seen, I think that would be a great poster. Uh, you know what? I, and, then and the last quote a, being Miles Davis saying, so what? So what? I'm like, that would be a great poster. Did you ever have an audience member in mind that you're making it for? 
Like, is it a musician? Is it yeah. you? Is it? Yeah, I did. I and there were many different. Who are you ones. making the film for? I can maybe answer that in a about who I didn't want to make it for. I did not want to make it for the two percent of the population that really understands jazz and really understands what's going on in that music. I hope they come and I hope they love it and I hope they experience it too. And I think if they let their stuff go, they will have that experience with it. But I know there is a snobbery that happens with that kind of music. So I, I knew that I, there might be a problem with those guys. And, but then I would know, sit and talk with Herbie, you know? And, and Herbie would say things to me like, I'd go, yeah, I don't know. I think people are going to maybe not like this, not like that. He goes, oh, they, it's great if they don't like it. He goes, that lasts longer. <laughs> it's, like, it's good if you've rubbed people the wrong way. It's good to do that with, your, with art and with music and with stuff about Miles. It's like, that's great. It's like, well, Herbie, if you're, you know, okay. And Vince Wilburn sees the movie and he's like, I love it. And Cheryl talks to me, his daughter, and she's like, you're right on time with this movie. You did the right thing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to try to listen to those guys. And no matter what happens as a result of the movie, which I can't control anyway, I'm going to always hopefully be able to go back and, and hear that. So, yeah, I had audience members in my head. But the best thing... Somebody said to me, like, wow, I really want to listen to Bitches Brew now. Or, wow, I really want to go check out the Jack Johnson stuff. Or, man, I want to listen to those Copenhagen bootlegs now. I'm like, that to me was the, my, the, my highest goal for this movie. You wanted to honor him by continuing that way of thinking and the approach And that approach to work. Yeah. That's what I want to do. I want to have musicians. I want to write music. I want to play with his art. I want to paint. I want to do all the things that he did because... I feel like those are the marching orders that that man told everybody that he worked with to do. He was the guy who said, if I hear you playing your solo in your hotel room and you come down and do that, you're fired. He said to Herbie, I, I pay you to practice in front of people. I pay you to rehearse on stage. Isn't that the most freeing thing? Isn't that what an artist wants to hear? At, they, and they all talk about it. Once they, be, once they believed it, like I'm saying, my editors, once they were like, I think he's serious. Oh, then you just have so much fun and there's something that something infectious happens in that where everyone feels like, oh, we can all play in the pool and all of us have the say here and and we all have something that's valid that we can uh, that we can contribute to this. Well, it's not hard to draw an analogy to an actor who comes in on a set and the director says, I want to play here and I want to try what I, I want to see you practicing. I want to see you can fail here and yeah. you're protected yeah. versus a director that has an, a, you sort of an here, agenda. You say this, you do that. That's right. Or really is waiting to see the performance he saw in his head. Right. Rather than being surprised. Right. Right. Yeah. How, how did directing this film, how did, it, uh, how did it inform you as an actor? What did it teach you about being an actor? That's really a good question. Um, it, how special that relationship is. And how very often actors, because you can't. I mean, you don't really understand what it is that when that director is carving out that however much time he's spending to tell you specifically and really be all about you in that moment, 
how much, how many other things, you know, are that building of that stuff that's back there in his head is sitting there too. Like, and as soon as you check that off, now you got to look at the purse, and that's then you're right. gonna need to make sure this couch is right, and then you got to hear that sound cue. And is his name I E or is it E I? Every question is going to be asked to that person. So, how val- how special. That, that time is when you have that with a director who gives you that. That is something that they're really... Something to that, value. That, sacrifice, that, that costs something. And that you should really honor that. Because I've been that actor at times who's been like, yeah, what? <laughs> I know what we're doing. And it's like you don't think about the fact that, that that's a very precious moment that that person had to carve out for that. And yeah. it's really, you really should be in that process with that person at that time and really focus on that. Yeah. Well, God, I could talk to you for hours about this. I, I think that you made, you made a film that it begs to be watched a few times because there's so much information packed in there <laughs> that the first time you're just sort of trying to hang on because right. it's, it, it, it confounds your expectations. Right. Uh, but at the same time, it makes me very excited to see what you'll do next because now you've had this experience. and. Unlike your wife, I think you should do it again. I think you should dive deep into it as long as it doesn't kill you because really interesting things come out of that. And, and, you know, where's the fun of being safe? Exactly. So, I, you know, thank you for sharing it with me and your experiences. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what you do next. Yeah, thank you. Me too. Hey folks, that's our show. You know, that's another episode from our past archives that I really wanted to share with you because it was one of my favorite episodes. I love hanging out with Don and to sit down and talk to him about his humble beginnings and where he came from and about his work ethic and about his difficult decision whether to study music or acting. I can relate to all of that. I love going back and listening to that show again. So if you did enjoy it and you want to dive into the archives of Off Camera, here's what you do. Go to offcamera.com, and there you'll find all 218 shows we've ever done ready for your perusing pleasure. And for only $4.99 a month, you can get our television subscription package that allows you access to every show to watch as many times as you like on any device you choose. It's a great way to support the show, and it's a great way to catch up on episodes you've missed. And if you've only been listening to the show so far, seeing it is a whole nother dimension that you should really experience. So go to offcamera.com. Check that out. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, take a minute and do that so you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, leave us a rating and a review so that other people can find us more easily. Also, if you're in a sharing mood, please take a minute and share off camera with all your friends. You can do this through social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you love what we're doing, don't keep it to yourself. Take it to the streets. Tell people about Off Camera. I want to thank everyone that works on this show every week. Crawford Shippey, Michaela Galvin, Nathan Shields, Sasha Snow, Kara Johnson. We couldn't make a show without these fine people. And I'm very lucky that we've had this little family for a long time now. I mean, Nate, who's sitting here recording me right now, was on episode number one. So it's pretty nice. We have a little off-camera family. And if you know any of these people individually, take a minute and give them a big kiss. Or buy them lunch. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. See you next time, off camera.